in my experience, there are kind of two things that have defined the human experience, our culture, our society, everything we've done as people throughout history. One of them is pretty bad, and that's war. We can't seem to shake and kick that habit of violence within us. But perhaps standing in direct contrast to that, the other thing that has defined humanity is love. In fact, what's been described as the oldest surviving love poem dates back to the, around the year 2030 BC. 4,000 years ago, we were writing poems expressing our love for one another. And over the years since, we've continued to think, to write, to argue about, and celebrate what love is. In fact, a popular music streaming service, which rhymes with grapple, uh, offers playlists of the 50 greatest love songs from every decade going back to the 1960s. And that's just the good ones. In fact, that's just the great ones. I tried to do a Google on how many love songs have been written in the last 100 years, and I don't think anyone has bothered counting because it's too big. And love isn't just a romantic concept. We enjoy family love. Love for friends, love for pets. We even express love sometimes for inanimate objects like chocolate. <laughs> and love is such a wonderful thing. Whether we are receiving love or giving love, it's an incredible, beautiful, wonderful feeling. And the Bible backs this up time and time again. In fact, Jesus makes clear in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, that the greatest commandment God has given us as people is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But at the same time, we often can't help but ask what love really is. What does love really mean? Is the way that we understand love today aligned with what Jesus was talking about in those verses, or have all the songs, the movies, the chocolates begun to shift our view of love until when we say, I love something, it doesn't really resemble the kind of love that Jesus was talking about us showing to God and to other people. You know, if we want to get that commandment right, we have to start by getting the meaning of love right. So today, I do just want to look at God's character as the loving king, because I think however God loves must be the right way to love. And that's the best starting point. And I'm a little bit of a word nerd, uh, so my starting point for this was to look at the meaning of the word that Jesus used for love. 
Because the Bible, uh, these passages were originally written in Greek, and Greek is slightly <laughs> different to English. Because in English, we use the word love to convey all forms of love. We use one word. Whereas in Greek, Costas is nodding, so I know I'm not wrong. In Greek, they have many words that describe different aspects of what love is. So I just want to apologize in advance for the absolute murder of the Greek language that is about to take place. This might be the last day that Costas speaks to me. Uh, but a few of the most common words that the Greeks used for love are these. First, we've got eros. It's where we get the word erotic from. Now, this primarily talks about passionate, intimate, and often sexual love that we may have for one another. Then, the second one is philia. This is often called brotherly love. It's built upon mutual respect. It's friendship. It's the kind of love that I expressed when I was best man at my best friend's wedding. And the third one is storge. This is a little rarer, but was most commonly used to describe the kind of love that a parent feels for their child. And that's just three of them. There's a lot more, and I'll let you talk to someone who knows about it better than I do. And it may seem overkill to the English mind that they would have so many words to describe love. But as someone who's been part of a conversation where I've expressed romantic love, and I've been told, oh Josh, I love you, just not like that. It would have been really handy if there was a clearer way for us to express what we were feeling well in advance. If they'd been using philia the whole time, I'd have known there wasn't any eros on the table. <laughs> Whereas in English, I'm sure it makes my wife, Karis, feel a little bit less special when five minutes after saying I love her, I'm expressing the exact same word towards Arsenal's absolute legend, Bakayo Saka, as he scores a last-minute winner. Obviously, in that moment, I'm feeling very different emotions. But the word I'm using is the same. The interesting thing is that the word Jesus uses in Matthew isn't eros or philia or storge. He uses a different word for love, which is agape. It's one that some of us might have heard before, but this word is special. Because in the Bible, agape is only used for one kind of love. It's the love that God shows us and in return, the love we show back to him and out into the world. Agape is entirely about the love of the king. It's not built or based on attraction or desire. It's not about status. Agape even goes beyond the love that a parent feels for a child. Agape always starts with God and it flows out from him to us and then through us into this world. 
And so having discovered the word that Jesus used, I wanted to get a bit of a clearer definition. And I looked at some dictionaries, but none of them really caught, caught my eye in terms of how they described it. They didn't seem to grasp the depth that God's love really shows. And then I felt really led to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage that we often read at weddings, which in one sense is lovely, but in another sense uh, can mean that sometimes we only associate these words with romance when they're about much, much more than that. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Every single time that that passage uses the word love, it uses the word agape. This passage, while not intended to be a dictionary definition of love, does a really great job of describing some of the nature of the love that God shows us. Just think back on those words and realize that that's what God's love for you is like. It's patient, it's kind, it's slow to be provoked into anger, and so, so much more. You know, this love is really powerful, and understanding this love is what changes the world today. For a lot of my life, I really struggled to understand why anybody would love me. I knew they did, uh, but I didn't get it because I'm so aware of every fault, every mistake, every bit of rubbish in my life that it was really hard to see any good reason for people to love me past that. In fact, one of my favorite films uh, is a film called A Knight's Tale. And in it, the villain's catchphrase is, you have been weighed you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And that really describes how I felt about myself. I looked at the scales of good and bad in myself and in my own life, and it seemed as though the bad outweighed the good, and therefore the good did not matter. But what changed that was understanding the reality of the love of God. And the truth is, I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way about myself in the world today. And I really hope, 
I really want to share this love of God with other people so that they too can understand that the king of heaven and earth feels about them the same way he feels about me. It's not that he doesn't see the things I've done wrong. It's not that he doesn't know I've got faults. In fact, he knows faults about me that I'm not aware of yet. It's not that he doesn't see those things. But his love is so powerful, so patient, so perseverant that it overcomes those things. And most incredible of all, God's love for me is totally unreliant on who I am. It's totally reliant on who he is. We often, when we talk about love, we turn it into some really soft, squidgy thing. We almost... uh, In our society, we associate love and care sometimes with weakness. But make no mistake, the love of God is not weak. The love of God is powerful. God can love us because his love is so powerful that even while he is extremely unhappy, and that's a mild way of putting it, with the state of our lives, with our sinfulness, He can love us all the same. The Psalms express time and time again that God holds righteous and totally justified anger towards sin and sinners. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. Yet because God is also the loving king, not just in his actions, but in who he is, he can hold those two things in tension. He is still able to love us in spite of ourselves purely because of how mind-blowingly good he is. You know, this is the heart of the message of the Bible. We have a king who created subjects to serve him and live in relationship with him. He gave them everything they needed and wanted to live and more and he loved them deeply. And yet, He found his love met with rejection. He found his reign and rule met with rebellion. And he found his goodness and kindness rewarded with betrayal. Now in that moment, at that point, he had every right to start again. To sweep away the rebels, to crush the rebellion, and turn to subjects who were more deserving of his love. You know, that's how every human king has responded to rebellion. If you've seen the end of Braveheart, you know it's not a happy one. But Jesus came to earth, fully God and therefore fully love, in order to end our rebellion in a wholly different way. Because God is so great, his love is so unfailing, that even as he looked with genuine disgust at what we were doing, Even in that moment, he was planning for our redemption. Isn't that amazing? That even as he looked and was horrified with the sight of what we were doing to this world and the way that we were rejecting his love, and even as he saw that, he already had planned to save us. And through Jesus, our rebellion can end with a return to relationship with God with the king, and a restoration of our place in the kingdom. I think 
when we look at what Jesus did, we can't deny it was incredibly costly to him. He died on a cross. Even before that, he who was God, who was in heaven, who had created everything, squished himself (laughs) into a human body and came and lived among us. It cost him to love us in that way. Which is why how we respond to that love really matters. When we receive God's love, we understand what it means and we understand how much it cost. There should be a change within us. I really believe that one of the most dangerous things we can do is to take God's love for granted. And when we read 1 Corinthians 13, it can be easy to find that sinking in because we can read phrases like, God's love keeps no record of wrongs, and we can think that that means that we can do what we want, keep living our own way, and then (laughs) escape any consequences because we've got some kind of cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card. But to do so ignores two essential things. The first is that 1 Corinthians 13 follows directly on from saying God's God's love keeps no record of wrongs by saying that his love does not delight in evil. Evil, whether big or small, has no place in God's love, no place in God's character, no place in God's presence, and no place in God's kingdom. And so, as his people, we need to recognize that as well. But we can also find ourselves denying the fact that we are commanded by Jesus to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and to love God using the same kind of love that God has shown us. And that means that our love for God, the love that we're told is the greatest commandment, also needs to not delight in evil. We often say that we love God. We sing about it. Sometimes we even proclaim it from the front in what I'm hoping will be a 30-minute talk. But the reality is, is the love we're showing God in practice actually representative of the agape he commands us to show? When God's timing in answering our prayers, perhaps in terms of uh, the transfer of a building... When his timing isn't as quick as we would like, is our love for him patient in spite of that? Or are we quick to leap to anger and say, God, why are you letting us down when he's done nothing wrong? When we see God's hand at work in someone else's life, when other people seemed more blessed than we are, does our love leap to envy and accusations of God showing favorites even though we know he never, ever does. Finally, is our love for God seeking him, or is it still self-seeking? Are we in this relationship to love him, or to get what we can from his love for us? Is God still the first and greatest love in our lives? 
you know, if, if the answer to any of those questions is slightly tricky, and I know as I asked myself them in the week, they were very tricky, then perhaps we need to revisit the kind of love that we've begun to show to God. The incredible thing about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, and this is something that Paul Luckcraft, who I don't think is here, pointed out to me uh, in a meeting this week, is that 1 Corinthians 13 actually forms part of one continuous passage of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Although we've separated it into chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, in the letter itself, which wasn't written with chapters, uh, this is one continuous thought. I mention this because in the King's Church Chesham, we've talked a lot about 1 Corinthians 12 in the past couple of years. See, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about two things. It talks about the gifts of the Spirit, which are the ways that through the Holy Spirit we see amazing things like healing, miracles, and prophecies happen in this world for our benefit and encouragement and for reaching people who don't know God yet. And 1 Corinthians 12 also talks about the fact that each and every one of us is called to be a united body. That each of us has a valuable part to play for God and is equally valuable as a member of his family. And over the last couple of years, we've talked about it a lot because we want to be united. And we want to see more gifts, more healings, uh, more prophecies amongst us because they are powerful signs of God's work in this world but often we've stopped at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and we've not read the start of 1 Corinthians 13. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3 make clear that without love, anything and everything else we do is empty. You know, without love, prophecy is just empty words. Without love, without love, even helping the poor and needy, even at great cost to ourselves, is empty in the eyes of God. Love is essential to all these other things that we desire. And yet, although I've prayed a lot to God in the last couple of years to see more healings, to see more works of his power, to experience more of the Holy Spirit, I've rarely asked him for a fresh impartation of his love. And you know, I really feel if we want to see people healed in Chesham, we need to start by loving them the way that God loves them. If we want to see people come to know him in Chesham and beyond, we need to start by loving them the way that God loves them. That means that no matter how difficult or frustrating people are, we need to be slow to anger and difficult to provoke. Even when they seem to throw our love back in our face, we need to take a step back and remember how many times I have thrown God's love back in his face. And yet, how much he still has loved me throughout. I'm reminded of some more words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Tax collectors get a very bad rap in the Bible. (laughs) And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. But be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are really challenging words, aren't they? But when we read them, we've got to remember where it's coming from. This is Jesus saying it. And he knows that as people, we turned away from God. We placed ourselves in opposition against him. We, in effect, made ourselves his enemy when we rejected his rule. And yet Jesus, even as he said this, had already come down to earth to be the physical embodiment of God's love and to save us even though we didn't deserve it. And praying ahead of today, I've been struck time and time again that this world needs to see more, kind of that, more of that kind of love. The reality is we can disagree with each other and still love one another. We can challenge evil, which is an important thing to do, but we can challenge that evil while still praying earnestly that the love of God will be with that person and will bring about the same transformation in them that it has in me. Because I know that without the love of God, I would have no way of changing my evil ways. And so without the love of God, it's likely that the people we're dealing with don't either. Let's not, it's not about compromising the values of the kingdom, showing this kind of love. Instead, it's about representing the values of the kingdom in the same way that Jesus did. You know, when we look at the Bible, Jesus was very clear with people when he saw them doing things that were wrong. He called out evil all the time. And yet he did so often while he was having dinner with the very people whose behavior he said was wrong. You know, he saw their evil and he didn't run away from it. He ran towards it. Not so that he could take part, but so that he could show them that his love was still there for them in that moment. His love is the only way that any of our lives have a hope of changing. Even as Jesus died on the cross, his cry, his final breath, was one of love. That we would be forgiven. I think that love isn't soft or weak. It's more formidable, powerful, and unstoppable than anything else in this universe. We need more of it. So to close this morning, I want to ask you three questions. The first is, do you know how much God loves you? We've spent the last few weeks talking about who that God is. That he is the king of heaven and earth. That he is great and glorious. That he is full of justice. 
that he is the creator of all things who is constantly creating anew, that he is alive and active in his power, and that that power is beyond anything we can imagine in our natural minds. That is who God is. And do you know that that God loves you? His love for you goes beyond any other love you've ever experienced. Any other love we found in our songs. Any other love we've expressed for our favorite football players. God's love is so unfathomably different. And maybe when we start talking about that love, we need to make it a little bit clearer. But God loved you enough to die for you. Despite all he is and all you have done and all I have done. If you don't know that yet or can't quite believe it's possible, then I totally get that because I've experienced God's love and I still sometimes wake up and cannot believe the reality that I'm living in. But that's how good it is. I just encourage you today, whether you've known God for a long time or you don't really feel like you know him at all, just remember that love is always available afresh and again. And so if today you need to know how much God loves you again, then just ask him to show you. Second question is, what does your love for God look like? Is it a reflection back to him of the love he's filled you with? Or has it begun to lose some of its luster? Is God still that first and greatest love for you? Or has a delight for rebellion and a temptation to turn away and love other things begun to creep in? And finally, what kind of love are you showing others? Is it an overflow of agape spilling out from you because you can't hold it in? Or is agape, agape flowing in and something slightly different flowing out? Is there a blockage? If you recognize that in yourself and you don't quite know where that is, then perhaps just ask God quietly whether there are some particular people where your love for them needs to look a little bit more like his love for them. Where he wants to help you love those who don't like you back. If the answer to either of those last questions is difficult to you, for you, then I'd like to refer you to the first question. Because agape comes entirely from God. We can't create it within ourselves. We can't conjure it up or fake it. Agape has to start with knowing the love of God for you, embracing that, understanding the reality of what it is and allowing it to change and shape you for the better. So if the last two questions are difficult for you, then again, maybe it's time this morning to just ask God for a little bit more, for a little bit of a fresh understanding of how much he loves you.